I'm Rebecca Achanga-Julia Bushell, and I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. I'm a former British champion and world number one, but I quit the sport just before the 2012 Olympic Games at just 17. I'll be navigating you through the waters of my swimming world, as I remember it and as it exists now. In hosting this series, I'll also tell you more about my story whilst we explore a question I've often been asked. Why do we swim? Welcome to Physical Capital, a series centered around the human relationship with swimming. What draws us to it? How do we use it? What do we gain from it? And what can it take from us? We'll be looking at swimming from multiple angles to help paint a complete picture of the sport. We're going to be exploring swimming through the prism of physical capital, discussing the physical attributes that can give you an advantage in the water and how they've been used to achieve greatness, but also how they can be affected and influenced by politics, geography, and the unequal distribution of resources. But most importantly, we'll be speaking to swimmers, from those that push themselves to their limits in the swimming pool and in open water, to those that swim for fun and for pleasure, and those who document its history. When you think of swimming, what image comes to mind? For me, it doesn't take long to see a row of athletes lined up on the edge of the pool. Stiff, but also relaxed, their breath steady and strong, then forced staccato bursts, and their strong legs lifting their bodies up to the blocks, tensing, ready to dive, then ready to race. Getting to that level doesn't happen overnight. Those athletes have been training, like I did, morning and evening, for years, to get to that point. To help better understand competitive swimming, I've spoken with three athletes, past, present and future. They share their experiences, their finest moments, and the hard work, grit and gruelling dedication it takes to become a world-class swimmer. I, I guess because I've managed to make it a career now, um, I've been able to swim for Britain. I've devoted so much of my life to swimming and effort put in the water that it's like an inescapable part of me now for better or for worse. I don't know. Like, I don't know my life without it and I never will know my life without it. Arguably, it is the highest standard you've ever seen for entry into this sport, as we saw from the recent World Championships, with numerous world records being broken, many of which has stood for 14 years. That means the standard has never been higher than it currently is. At that age, I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was is that I was competitive. I was focused on trying to beat the person next to me. And um, I definitely didn't get into this to be a role model. <laughs> Competitive swimming has a rich history with its roots tracing back to the inception of the modern Olympic Games in 1896. Originally a male-only arena, women's events were introduced in 1912, marking a significant milestone in the sport's inclusivity. In the early days, the Olympic swimming events included some rather unusual challenges, 
For example, athletes had to navigate a 200-meter obstacle race on the Seine River in France. They faced the daunting task of climbing over poles and a line of boats, even swimming beneath them. These more extreme swimming events, however, were phased out with the establishment of FINA, the international governing body for swimming. Under FINA's regulations, both Olympic and world competitions saw a transition to standardized race lengths measured in meters. In 1969, world records for races measured in yards were abolished, and the strokes allowed in competitions were refined to the four types we're familiar with today. Freestyle, or what you may know as front crawl, backstroke, breaststroke, and butterfly. All four strokes are used in the individual medley race. Over the years, various nations have emerged as powerhouses in Olympic and world swimming competitions. The likes of Hungary, Denmark, Australia, Germany, France, Great Britain, Canada, Japan, and the United States have all made their mark on the global stage. The emphasis on international competition led to the rise of 50-meter pools, providing athletes with ideal training environments. Innovative advancements further enhance both training techniques and performance. Wave-killing gutters, race lane markers that reduce turbulence, underwater stroke analysis cameras, visible clocks for swimmers, and electric touch and timing devices all contributed to the sport's growth and have made it into the sport it is today. But what is it like to be immersed in the world of competitive swimming? Swimming is an extremely demanding competitive sport, both physically and mentally, and it has its own unique set of challenges. The training is unbelievably intense. I was in the pool for five, almost six hours a day, twice a day, every day, for almost every single week of the year. And on top of that, there's the constant need to compete. You need to really want to do it. And if you want it badly and want to be the best, then you have to commit. But what does it really take to go pro? Well, you need to start young, first of all. I was about 10 when I started training properly. And if you start swimming in your teens, there's a chance it's already too late. But of course, not always. I left the sport at the age of 17. And if you look at the most decorated swimmers of all time, they're mostly retired before their mid-30s. If you decide swimming is for you, it's still not without its challenges. You have to balance a rigorous training regime alongside your schooling and education. Who's gonna drive you to training in the morning at 5 a.m.? Who's gonna drive you back again in the evening? How do you afford to pay for the club fees? How do you get to the level where you can achieve sponsorship? Training at such a young age, at such intensity, takes you out of so many social situations. How do you decide that that's the right risk to take? Does this mean that you always need to come from an affluent socioeconomic background? Do your parents need to have enough to send you to a special school so that you can train alongside your education? I started young. I did my first race at the age of six in a 25 meter pool in Kenya. I think it was 25 meters front crawl. And I won and I came home and I said to my mom, you know, this is me and this is what I'm gonna do. And I drew her a picture of a little brown girl in a swimming costume with a big medal around her neck. And I said, this is me when I win the Olympic games. And I was six. 
And I think my mum raised me like that. For the first couple of years of my life, it was just me and her. And she wanted to teach me the value of competition, of learning, of success. And I think she made me into somebody who wanted to be the best. And so when I think about sport, and I think about my approach to sport and my swimming career, it was definitely born out of my mum's approach to parenting me. Sometimes I'd come home from school and I was so hyperactive as a child. And my mum would make me do these obstacle courses in the garden for hours before I could come inside. I was maybe seven or eight and growing up in Nairobi and I just had so much energy all the time. So when I started swimming properly, you know, swimming four or five hours every day, I don't think it felt that insane to my body. It didn't seem strange. And I think when I was younger, especially when I was about 10, and a lot of top athletes say this, I was incredibly good at athletics, at hockey, at netball, at pretty much anything I put my mind to. I had good hand-eye coordination, and I was the captain of the hockey team, the rounders team, the netball team, and I ran a very fast 100 meters. I think a lot of people have bodies that are made for activity. And for me, it always felt like there was this synaptic connection that made moving my body feel really innate. And so it was strange that I found a home in the water, but somehow, despite all of the other ways that I like to move, that felt like the most natural. Like most top sports people, I probably could have done any sport. And I think it's some combination of the energy, your ability to focus your mind, how quickly you, your body responds to the things your brain is telling it, and also just some level of innate physical ability that feels almost inexplicable. And so for me, I think I was always going to excel in sport. It just happened that swimming was the thing that I connected with more intensely than anything else. And there's something within me and my physical capital that dictated that for me. But I'm wondering if this is the case for all competitive swimmers. Like when I touched the wall in 2016 and I missed it and got third, I got out of that pool at trials and there were people crying. And they gave me a standing ovation. And people were like, what you have done for the sport, no one else has ever done. And to see people literally crying, it was touching in a way that I can't even explain that I was able to have 12,000 people standing on their feet to get, as soon as I got out, to start clapping. And I thought at that moment I was whole. Another swimmer who's had an incredibly decorated career and is now retired is Colin Jones. My name is Colin Jones. I am a two-time U.S. Olympian, uh, winning four medals, two gold, two silver, and a massive learn to swim advocate. <laughs> Cullen was part of Team USA, alongside Michael Phelps, the year the team won 12 Olympic golds. His career has been long and illustrious, and also historical. Getting the chance to speak to him, I really wanted to know, from his perspective, what does it take to be a competitive swimmer? Because I know that intimately, but I think the biggest thing is the commitment to the process. To be a competitive swimmer in the States and to be Black, it, it just means that you are going to be isolated. You're going to feel alone in many respects. I dealt with it quite a bit. I swam for a Jewish community center for about four years. Mind you, it was one of the best experiences, but I, I didn't have a lot of people, especially in the 90s, to look up to. 
that looked like me in my sport. So I'm, I'm thankful that my son will have people like myself or Simone Manuel or Leah Neal to kind of look up to or Natalie Hine. There's, there's so many different swimmers now that have come through the ranks, but a lot of it is awareness. A lot of it is education. But I think for this next generation, um, they're already starting in a much better place than the people of my generation because we just didn't have, we didn't have role models. And I think that that feeds into, you know, a narrative that's really being explored in this kind of post BLM re-eruption moment, not just in sporting institutions, but in all institutions, right? Which is, if you can see it, to some extent, you're going to believe that you can be it a little bit more. And I wonder what that kind of means to you in light of the fact that you didn't have that. You know, what did it mean to be a competitive swimmer when you really were breaking new ground? I mean, honestly, I didn't know I was doing it. I'll, I'll be honest. I was just oblivious. I just wanted to beat the person next to me. But I just, I'll never forget my dad and I are New York Knicks fans. I grew up in New York, in New Jersey area. And uh, we used to watch Michael Jordan. And my dad hated Michael Jordan. And it was really because he just always beat the Knicks every single time. But of course, as a kid, I'm like, oh, Michael Jordan. Like, I, I just loved him. So <clears throat> there was a, a game that Gatorade made a commercial off of. But it was when he had the flu. And he put the team on his back. And my dad said, that's what an athlete does. And so even as a young person, I was learning from basketball how to be an athlete. And I was trying to figure out how to translate that into a sport that, yeah, it didn't look the same, but the work ethic, the time management, the, the desire, the focus, all of the same things were transferable um, into the sport of swimming. So at that age, I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was is that I was competitive. I was focused on trying to beat the person next to me. And um, I definitely didn't get into this to be a role model. <laughs> no, I mean, I completely agree. I think so I was 15 when I was ranked first in the world. And then I was British champion the year after. And in that moment, well, just after that moment, I became the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. And it's got to give your roses, got to give your flowers when you get them right there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But it's, it's funny you hearing, hearing you talk about you know, the fact that you didn't get into sport to be a role model. And I think that that was really complicated for me at that time because I love to swim. I love to win. I love to swim fast. I love to psych people out in the cool room. It was about being an athlete and it was about showing up for the relays when the chips were down. And, you know, there's there's so much about swimming that, that spectators don't see. But I think what they did see was the color of my skin, which I could never you know, I could never get rid of that. I carry that with me every day. <laughs> can't hide that. Nope. Yep. Can't hide that. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering when these questions of race were put to you, you know, how did you deal with that? How did you kind of take those things and still find ways to focus on the process, to quiet the noise? Did you have ways of, of kind of coping? Yeah. You know, Arthur Ashe was a very, very obvious prominent tennis player in the early 90s. And I think one of the other things my dad pointed out about him was that even if he got a bad call, he was stoic about it. He never showed that he was upset. He never did anything, but that also psyched him out. You're talking about psyching people out and in the ready room. I'm the same way, Rebecca, the same way. I would sit there like this stone cold maybe not the phelps face but i had a face like i was i was sitting up there like even my best friends like nathan adrian who i always raced and like anthony Irvin, 
they knew not to talk to me before a race. Afterwards, uh, yeah, sure, talk to me all day. But like before the race, I was ice cold. It was from people like Arthur Ashe, from people like Michael Jordan, that I drew like that meaning of what it meant to be an athlete and what, what it meant to be ready for that. And so, again, representation is key. We're going to get off this call, and I'm, I'm doing a deep dive into you so I can show you to my son. You know, I, it's a representation that's so important. Um, and you're right. When you're behind the block, you can't hide your skin color. But what you can do is swim just as fast as anyone else. Colin Jones is one of my heroes and someone I watched growing up when I was training. It was incredible to speak to him and so interesting to hear how aligned our experiences were coming through the ranks. I guess I take away how much he stresses the commitment to the process and how much I agree with that. To make it in competitive sport, you have to commit to an insane level. Hours and hours in the pool from a very young age, but also a commitment to the process that sometimes means incremental gains, even within the space of one year. And I think the dedication to keep going back and keep training is something that his career highlights so perfectly. In 2010, I made history as the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. It was a strange moment for me. I was 16 years old, and there was a huge amount of attention in the press and media about the color of my skin, and less so about my ability in the pool. But those two things served to put a huge amount of pressure on my performance. 10 years later, in 2021, Alice Deering made history as the first black woman to compete for Team GB at an Olympic Games. Our paths didn't cross in the pool, but we were often mentioned in the same breath because of our uniquely shared experience of both being firsts. To get a better understanding of where swimming is at this present moment, I invited Alice to join me in conversation. My name is Alice Deering. I'm a Team GB marathon swimmer. And yeah, I guess my relationship to water is I swim. I swim a lot and it's been a huge part of my life and always will be. Okay, I'm interested in two parts of that, but I want to start with marathon swimmer because I feel like that's a new title. When people were first doing long distance swimming and long distance swimming first became a part of the Olympics, it was called just that. So when did you become a marathon swimmer by name and how do you feel about it? It used to always be open water swimming and FINA World Aquatics had kind of rebranded it as marathon swimming. And I always think it, it sounds quite cool, like it's like marathon swimming and everyone's like, oh my God, what's that? And I'm like, oh, it's a 10K. And they're like, oh my God. <laughs> and so it just has this like air of importance, maybe. <laughs> sounds really arrogant. It's a flex. I think it's a flex. <laughs> yeah, I could never swim anything over 100 meters. So like 10K, I think it's quite, it's quite impressive. Before we talk about the beginning and how you started swimming, I was interested in what you said in your intro about the fact that swimming will always be a big part of your life. What do you mean by that? And and I guess why? I, I guess because I've managed to make it a career now. I've been able to swim for Britain. I've devoted so much of my life to swimming and effort put in the water that it's like an inescapable part of me now for better or for worse. I don't know. Like I don't know my life without it and I never will know my life without it. I kind of remember when I was younger, there was like that time when you can see your life diverging down two paths and looking back on it, you know, that's what was happening. But at the time you had no idea. You just make the choice, which is best for you at the time. 
that's kind of what happened to me. So I got an opportunity to go to the Royal Wolverhampton School. I got given a scholarship when I was 11 years old and I took that opportunity. I think if I hadn't taken that opportunity, my life probably would have gone down a different path, whether that would have been better or worse or the same, I don't know. But choosing to be able to swim and study alongside each other was quite a big moment. You will know this exactly as well. We've done the same thing. I do sometimes wonder, like, what if I hadn't chosen to go to that school and stayed at my school back in Oldbury, stayed at City of Birmingham Swimming Club, Honestly, wasn't enjoying it that much there. Might not have carried on swimming past a certain point and would have had a very different life, basically. So going off on that tangent, I've just realized that it is a huge part of me now, especially the doors that I've opened and the conversations that I've been involved with. It will always be with me. And I'm I'm really proud of that, actually. Like, it, it's given me so much. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm happy to take it with me the whole way. <laughs> I think it feels really inescapable as well. I like that you use that word. You know, for 10 years, I kind of felt like I could run away and reinvent myself and get away from this part of my life that was spent in the water. And it's been strange kind of, I guess, both reclaiming that version of myself, but also learning that I can't and that I won't ever get away from it. It's never going to be something that I can rub out or rub off. Yeah, I think it's learning to kind of live with that. And as you said, for better or for worse, you know, we'll always be swimmers. So you're 11 years old, and you're kind of at this sliding doors moment. And you go to this school, and this is the kind of first raindrop. And then flash forwards to 2020, and you're an Olympian, and it's that's the thunderstorm. What enticed you to competing in the first place? Oh, my God. I don't think I've ever been asked that. I don't know. I feel like it was something you just did. Like we trained and then we raced. So it just, it, I, go, I don't know, like you train to race, I suppose. So it just felt like, well, I've done all this training. I might as well go race. The first competition that I ever did was like a club championships. And I remember being really competitive, actually. So I'm trying to play it off like I'm not competitive right now, but I remember being really competitive. We were doing a 25 breaststroke or a 33 meter breaststroke because it was a 33 meter pool. And I was like looking over at the other girl next to me. And uh, my mum was like, you kept looking at her. And I was like, did I? Like, I don't remember doing that. Like, I, I thought I was just racing and I just kept like looking. I guess I, I got an enjoyment of it through, through then. I remember winning a couple of the races and getting seconds and thirds and I got my county time and then I was like, okay, I want to get my regional time. So I want to get my regional time. And then I wanted to get a national time. So I went and got a national time. And I think that was the thing for me. I was just like, what's the next level? Where can we take it? Where can we, where can we keep going? And I was fortunate enough to be able to take it to the Olympics. You know, I, I believe everyone has their Olympics and your Olympics might be counties. That's great. Good for you. Some people's Olympics is an Olympic final. Great. That's amazing for them. I always wondered what my Olympics would be basically. And I've been fortunate enough to make it an Olympic Games. And I just want to make it, try and make it another Olympic Games as well. <laughs> but for me, it was always about trying to get to the next level. I never really looked at swimming and thought, I want to go to the Olympics. It was always like, I want to get nationals. Okay, I want to get European juniors because I've seen that that's a really cool place to go. Oh, I've made a junior team. Let's try and make a senior team. It was just kind of like a snowball effect. And I was for- I'm fortunate enough, yeah. That's Alice. Her knowledge combined with her drive to progress is the perfect representation of the present-day competitive swimmer. But the thread that continues through both Cullen and Alice, and in many ways myself, is commitment. 
Commitment to achieve isn't about the past or present. Commitment leading to success is timeless. And now I want to look to the future of sport. And to do that, we're joined by journalist, sports correspondent, and also master swimmer, Nick Hope. So my name's Nick Hope. I have covered the Olympic and Paralympic as well as the Commonwealth Games sports movement and attended every game since 2008, summer and winter. So a fair bit of experience, 14 years as the BBC's lead Olympic and Paralympic sports correspondent across TV, radio and online. A big part of that has obviously been joining in with the coverage of World Aquatics Championships. So swimming, diving, artistic swimming, formerly synchronised swimming and water polo have been some of the big focuses during my career as well. Nick joins us to give an idea of where competitive swimming is now and where the sport is going. But to start, let's get an idea of how high the bar for entry into the sport is right now. Arguably, it is the highest standard you've ever seen for entry into this sport. As we saw from the recent World Championships, with numerous world records being broken, many of which had stood for 14 years since the super suit era, which uh, skewed things for a few years, which I'm sure we'll go into shortly. That means the standard has never been higher than it currently is. There are opportunities for athletes that perhaps there weren't in previous decades, which World Aquatics have introduced, which allows athletes from different nations outside of the traditional powerhouses, that is, opportunities to compete at world championships so they don't have to have quite as high entry times. But generally speaking, if you want to hit the elite level of the sport, you have to be better than anyone previously has been in past generations. I think, you know, to to achieve the greatest, you want to stand on the shoulders of giants and you learn from what previous generations have done. And when you come to looking at science and innovation and the analysis that goes into swimming strokes, into performance, into the nutrition, be it beforehand, be it after performance, even during it, that level has never been higher. It is constantly evolving. They're constantly looking at new techniques to improve the performance of swimmers. So every year, new things are being discovered, and that ultimately helps a swimmer perform better in training, recover more from training, to perform better in a competition, and again, to recover from their swims more rapidly. And ultimately, all of that information is pulled together and creates the record-breaking swimming that we're seeing currently. But if people are breaking records that were set by a suit that was banned because of its ability to help people perform beyond their physical capabilities, well, surely that is a sign that we're in a particularly exciting time for competitive swimming. And it's fascinating how advances in science and innovation are helping swimmers gain an advantage in the pool. But I'm guessing that science and innovation isn't available to all teams globally. We'll also be exploring this more in the next episode too. So for now, what does the future of competitive swimming look like? Right now, the future of competitive swimming is at a fascinating point. We've gone through a period where it was really shaken up. So there was the introduction of the ISL, the International Swimming League, which kind of came from nowhere and was this commercial entity which basically wanted to take swimming into properly into the 21st century. So it brought in loud music, a live DJ, it brought in the light shows, it brought in a proper show to swimming, which we'd never seen before because it's always been very traditional. You walk out on poolside, there might be a little bit of music, that will be an announcement. You get in, you race, you finish, you do your mix own interview. This spiced things up. And what it did is it created an opportunity for athletes away from Yes, the very top, but also those on the next tier 
to earn a regular income. The problem with this is that ultimately, while it was backed by sort of a Russian stroke Ukrainian billionaire who had a vision of where he wanted to take the sport, it was ultimately about trying to make it commercially viable, which what he did for the first couple of seasons was gave away the rights for free um, to make sure that it got out there and got the exposure on various different platforms, which it did. The difficulty was then after one, two seasons, when naturally he wanted to start recouping some of the money and proving that it could be commercially viable and bringing more sponsors. That's when it became more tricky. And he found that there weren't as many broadcasters as it was hoped would come in and stump up the money. So that's when there was discontent and certain swimmers felt like they weren't being paid what they were owed. And this created obviously a lot of issues for a while. But what it did is it pushed the International Federation who were FINA, who are now World Aquatics, or Aqua for short, to look at their game. They'd always had, you know, the World Championships, they'd had a World Cup series, but again, it was all very traditional. The World Championships is still similar to what it's been, and that is, in many ways, has to stay that way because of the way that it works in terms of Olympic qualification. But the World Cups, they have really tried to jazz up. Again, they have brought in, you know, the DJs, the the, the light shows, and trying to make it more entertaining and fast-paced for a younger audience and got rid of some of the longer distance races and tried to make it more sort of points-based, for example, and to do some innovations. That means the sport is at a very interesting point because you have this commercial property, an enterprise that, that hasn't really worked ultimately down the line. It was very good. It's had a good legacy in terms of it has created ideas, but it hasn't continued at the moment. We don't think that is coming back. So you're at a point where swimming is still one of the most popular in the Olympics, but it is still looking at a way to really truly tap into the younger generations who are coming through who perhaps don't want to sit through two hours of finals. To me, one of the most interesting elements of that is to unpack the attempt to monetize swimming with the introduction of the International Swimming League. I've always wondered why swimming wasn't monetized in the same way as other sports like football, tennis, or US sports like basketball, baseball, and American football. It has all the ingredients for it to work, right? Competition, athletes, characters, spectators. So why hasn't it happened for swimming yet? As I said, with the ISL, there was an attempt to try and monetize swimming and make it commercially viable and um, appeal to new audiences in the way that the traditional formats haven't. And the difficulty is like within the swim community, there was excitement. Whether it actually went beyond that, I don't know. Did it attract new audiences? Well, the figures suggest it didn't really, which perhaps is more of a cultural thing. Perhaps it needed to go on more. You know, it only lasted for three seasons, for three years, and part of that was during lockdown. If it became a more permanent fixture, would people buy into it over time? Swimming is making some really interesting steps in terms of social media and behind the scenes filming and trying to get some more storytelling around who the athletes are, you know, who are the people behind the goggles. I've been involved with many companies, including the BBC and World Aquatics and European Aquatics, in terms of audience analysis and data. Uh, and I won't bore you with it too much, but essentially what it seemed to suggest was people watching back at home, and this includes at the Olympics, even though it's one of the most watched sports, have a difficulty relating to athletes simply because of the nature of the sport, which is head down in the water, which is blacked up goggles under 
the water as well, even when you're out and breathing. When you watch track and field athletics, you see the pain that an athlete is going through and the stress on their face when they're going around, and you take notice of that. Sure, there are many dramatic moments. Look at the re the relays or the, the mixed medley in particular, which has come in. No sport other than swimming, I think, can really rival that level of drama, particularly when it comes to sort of mixed events. But it does fundamentally have that image problem and that relatability challenge, perhaps. That is where innovation has to come in, in terms of storytelling, in terms of social media, second screening. So you've got something there that if people are watching the races, there is something coming up on their mobile or whatever, or, or tablet, that can give them more information and keep them engaged. So maybe what swimming needs is a bit of a rebrand, or it needs to be dressed up differently. Something needs to be shaken up, because it should be an exciting sport to watch. I've always thought that. And maybe more importantly, it could financially benefit from becoming more of a commercial spectator sport. For those who are listening to this and are now looking forward to watching some more competitive swimming, let's look to the Paris 2024 Olympics. We're at a fascinating time in the world of swimming right now. 12 months out from an Olympics is the point where you start to get some of the emerging talents coming through. Of course, you're going to have many of the names that were big at the Tokyo Olympics uh, just two years ago coming around again. But you've also got this, as I said, this new exciting generation coming through who are probably winning medals and are in contention. But there are also those who are just at the moment reaching finals that you're just keeping an eye on. So somebody who was a breakout star last year at the age of 18, Molly O'Callaghan from Australia, has just moved things on again this year, is undoubtedly going to be one of the big stars of Paris as it stands. So she's just won five gold medals at the, the World Championships in Fukuoka. Two of those, that was the 100 meter and the 200 meter freestyle double. No woman has ever done that in history. And one of those was the 200 meter world record that she downed, which had been held by Federica Pellegrini for 14 years since the super suit era, which is just astounding. So she is an absolute one to watch. And the Australian team generally there were um, fascinating. Summer McIntosh from Canada, uh, again, last year, two gold medals at the age of 15, just as strong, moving things on, another world record earlier this year at the Canadian trials. Uh, a phenomenal uh, talent on the men's side, Leon Marchand. He was a headline act from, from the World Championships and so great that he is French because that will really get the home nation come the Paris Olympics so excited to have a big name and also you know the 400 meters I am early on in the program will get people from France excited about it he again uh, downed a 14 year old record held by a certain Michael Phelps that was the last one that Michael Phelps had and he is coached by Bob Bowman who was the man who guided Phelps to all of those gold medals there is so much excitement about him got to mention Quinn Haiyang from China my word we were watching him just absolutely astounded. So he completed the breaststroke treble, which has never been done before. Victories in the 50, the 100 and the 200 metres. And I cannot emphasise just how significant that is. To be good at the 50 metres and the 200 is pretty much unheard of because they're traditionally completely different disciplines and different muscle groups, different sizes of athletes that generally will win those two. If you think of somebody like Adam Peaty, who has dominated the 50 metres and the 100 metres, he would not generally speaking, be even reaching a world championship semi-final in the 200 metres, despite the fact he is as good as he is over the shorter distances. For Quinn Haiyang to win all three a year out from the Olympics is breathtaking, and he got a world record in the 200 metres as well. Ahmed Afnaoui of Tunisia, 
Here in Fukuoka in Japan, the World Championships year out from the Olympics, he won the 800 meters and the 1500 meters. He's uh, just, you know, 20 years old now and a phenomenal talent. And from a nation like Tunisia to have an athlete coming through like that can make a real difference to all those youngsters. Uh, from, from his nation and, and, and around the continent um, to have that role model to show what is possible. Okay, so that's the individuals. But what about the teams? When it comes to swimming, the biggest showdown that you always look at is between the Americans and the Australians. They have so much history. And recently, there's been a lot of media coverage off the back of the World Championships, which are kind of trying to stoke up the flames between the two nations as well. And to be honest, swimming needs that. It needs those rivalries. It needs those grudge matches. It needs things to get you excited about he said, she said, leading into major competitions. And that is probably something that will will really excite fans of the sport and beyond that leading into you know the Paris Olympics when I mentioned Quinn Haiyang earlier the Chinese have made some real progress the French as I mentioned with Leon Marchand there driving the way they've also got a few female medal prospects but definitely Leon will be the major one Maxime Grousset actually he won the 100 meter fly he'll have a few more rivals coming in from the USA from Hungary next year but again another really strong athlete Great Britain cannot write them off at all they won eight medals at the World Championships. That equals what they did at the Tokyo Olympics just a couple of years ago. And they achieved that without Adam Peaty being there. We expect that he will be back for Paris, is going to be firing. And that's potentially three more medals that he could help them win. They didn't do in Japan. So I would say Great Britain is quite possibly on for their best ever Olympic medal performance in the pool come Paris. The Olympics are seen as the pinnacle of sporting success, the highlight of any athlete's career. And in this episode, we've outlined the level of commitment that it takes to get there. From a training perspective, time in the pool, how early you have to start competing, and how much of your life swimming can consume. I guess what's important for me is that it's not always a straightforward process. There can be injuries along the way, there can be a handful of other physical things that don't go well. But also, it really depends on where you've started. Not everyone starts from the same point. The road to the Olympics, in any sport, is a hard one. But swing feels uniquely challenging. For me, growing up in Kenya, and even afterwards when I lived in South Africa, I'd only seen maybe two or three 50-meter pools by the time I was 13. And I still remember the first time I saw my first indoor 50-meter pool. It was at a school in the UK. Beyond commitment, there's also the reality of where we come from. And that's why next week, we'll be looking at the politics of swimming. And we'll be talking about how your global location can affect who can succeed in the sport and who might find it more difficult. Where you're from, what you have access to, can be fundamental to ultimately what you're able to achieve. This comes down to, on the one hand, yes, it's the resources and it's the access, um, but it's also down to the pathways and the role models that will also be available to you or not available to you, depending on where in the world you come from. Um, you know, I'm a strong believer and many athletes will be as well in, in the phrase, you need to see it to be it. And if that role model isn't there, if you can't see anyone who looks like you or has anything that you can relate to, achieving at the very top level, it becomes that much more difficult to think that your dream could become reality or even have that dream in the first instance. <laughs>